is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from the foothills of Connecticut in the Schwenk Studios is Taylor Schwenk. Sarah Abbott is working from the Abbott Studios in Bristol, Connecticut. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in Montana. And Taylor, uh, it's... There's snow on the ground here. It's officially off season, but man, for the Houston Astros, they had one great victory lap. What a parade that, that looked like an amazing parade down in downtown Houston. I love a good victory parade. And the, the citizens of Houston, Texas, they, they showed out a million friggin' people. That That is something else. Yeah, all kinds of enthusiasm. I heard that Jeremy Pena, their shortstop, about half the people are holding signs saying, marry me, marry me. That's what all the Astros players were joking about uh, after the parade, how many uh, proposals there were. And that, of course, is because uh, that parade came in the aftermath of this. Bottom of the sixth inning uh, on Saturday night, game six of the World Series, Jordan Alvarez at the plate. And a 2-1 pitch to Alvarez. is swinging the ball, hit to center field, and hit well. Barreling back. It is gone! Straight away, center field, hit a ton! And Jordan Alvarez breaks out of it with a three-run homer to give the Astros a 3-1 to lead. Because of the dominance of the Houston bullpen, you knew after that home run that this moment was inevitable. Runner at first, two down here in the ninth inning, 4-1 to Houston. There goes the runner as Castellanos pops it up, down the right field line, Tucker into foul territory, he's got it! And that'll do it! The Houston Astros have won the World Series as they take game six by a score of 4-1. to And they celebrate their second title in the last six seasons, and this time they do it at home. And the party is on here in Houston. That was the voice of the great Dan Schulman on ESPN Radio. And right after the game, I spoke with Astros manager Dusty Baker. Dusty, 2022 World Series champions. How you feeling? I'm feeling great. I, I feel these guys are the greatest guys. You know, they always believe. They always... This is for my mom and my dad and my mom that passed in January. And, uh, and my brother and all, all my boys, all my boys there. Hey, baby. Yes, sir. Hey, sir. How you doing, bro? God dang it. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. Tell me what it means to you have your first managerial championship. Well, I just knew it was going to happen sooner or later. You stick around long enough and you got good teams, it's going to happen sooner or later. You know what I mean? And this is... I, I said if I win one, I want to win two, so we might as well go for two. We'll see. Now, you know these guys well. How much has this helped them move past the 2017 fallout? Well, yeah, well, they were, they were past it anyway, and uh, it was the rest of the world that, that kept reminding them, you know what I mean? But they were past it. I mean, these guys are past it. Tormenta, la tormenta! I hear you, bro. Congrats, Dusty. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's longtime Astros second baseman, Jose Altuve. Jose, what's going through your heart right now? 
you know, just a lot of emotions. We're really happy as a team. I feel like the, the whole organization, the whole city deserve this and, you know, just, just happy. So you were on third base when the big home run goes over the batter's eye. Give us your view of that. You know, I knew he was gone as soon as he hit that one. You know, Albert is a big boy and, you know, he got the pitch he wanted to and hit it pretty good. And, you know, at the moment I was happy because I thought 3-1 was a good lead to, to give the guys in the bullpen. But, you know, we ended up scoring one more and it was enough to win the game. For Dusty Baker, his first managerial championship, what do you think? You know, just so happy for him because he came here to the right team at the right time and won his first uh, World Series. And for you guys, how much does this help you move past the fallout of 2017, Jose? You know, I love, I love, like I said, he was everything to us and he was the perfect guy for the right time. So you had a million people at a parade on Monday in Houston. Here was Alex Bregman speaking with the fans. If I can speak to everybody, I would just like to say that we're so excited. Uh, 2022 is a heck of a year, and uh, yeah, we got a, we got a young team, so the window's going to be open. Dream come true for every single person in here. Um, you know, you work all year long very hard to try and accomplish uh, winning a championship, and we did that. I'm so excited. Oh, it was unbelievable. Uh, just to be able to celebrate a championship today. Um, with my family here, my son's here, everyone, we're going to be riding on the, on the float uh, for the parade. And uh, I, think it, I think everyone in that clubhouse believed that we could do it. And uh, I think that's a big reason why we did do it. Here was Trey Mancini. Incredible. Um, you know, we had a good time celebrating the other night and, and got to hang with family yesterday and, and um, kind of recover and, and prepare for today. So I uh, can't wait. Can't wait for today. It's why you play the game. Uh, it's what you dream about when you're a kid. So I uh, can't wait to experience the parade today. Heard they shut uh, university schools down today and everything like that. So um, just so show us how special it is to, to play here that, that everybody's going to come out and support us like that today. Just thank you so much for your support. Um, you know, it means the world to us. We felt the love the other night. Um, and to be able to clinch here at our home park was was absolutely incredible. I had such a great experience here, even you know throughout you know some of the trials um, you know that I went through at the plate. Um, you know this team just being a part of this was absolutely incredible. It made a tough time um, enjoyable. Um, so so um, you know that's that's all I can say. So Sarah Abbott, what'd you make of all that? The parade, the celebration in downtown Houston, the the fans going crazy. I mean, it was amazing. Like, or like uh, Taylor said, I love a good victory parade. Taylor and I were actually talking before and shout out Kate Upton. I mean, I loved her responses to everything. She was a bright spot. And even as a lifelong Phillies fan of four weeks, I can say that. <laughs> well, all right. We're going to be talking about the Phillies coming up with Dave Schoenfield. Uh, we're going to be talking with Sarah Lang. She'll have her numbers Todd Radom will join us, and Doug Glanville has great perspective on Dusty Baker getting his first championship as a manager. The offseason moves began with a flurry. Uh, Angels general manager Perry Manassian announced that Shohei Otani will not be traded. Dave will talk about that coming up. Among those players opting out of their contracts, Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts, Twin shortstop Carlos Correa, Mets pitcher Jacob deGrom, and Yankees first baseman Anthony Rizzo. And we had our first big signing of the offseason the other day, Edwin Diaz and the Mets agreeing to a five-year, $102 million deal. And we also uh, got an announcement from the Baseball Hall of Fame that a special committee will consider the candidacies of eight players, including 
Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, one quick thing to mention. Yesterday, I've promoted the College Game Day podcast on here. It's a great show. You can listen to it Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, wherever you listen to your podcast. But yesterday, Pete Thamel, uh, half of the duo that hosts it, him and Reese Davis, Pete Thamel called out sick. So Reese Davis let it rip by himself for like 56 minutes about last uh, an amazing weekend in college football, and I, I was very impressed by it. It was really, really good. I highly recommend. You went 56 minutes solo? Solo. Me and Sarah were like, okay, you know, 20, 25 minutes, that would be a viable podcast, but he he got after it, and it was really good. Not surprising, but it, it was really good. So please check that out if, if you're a fan of college football. Very nice. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employees agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. That's indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. Doug Glanville is a baseball analyst for ESPN. You heard him on ESPN Radio throughout the postseason. And, Doug, uh, the Astros win the World Series. Uh, and in the aftermath, one of the questions, the big questions I think asked among the media, what does this do for their legacy? I, I you know, asked that question right after the game of Dusty Baker and Jose Altuve, and they, you know, reflexively pushed it off like that. That wasn't really a factor. I, whether you like him or you don't like him, I think it was a factor, Doug. What about you? Well, it's definitely a factor. I mean, this was uh, 
you know, a scandal that reached uh, all of baseball, all the world of sports, really, and created a new set of questions about fairness and oversight and, you know, what, what we're really trying to accomplish here uh, when you're winning at all costs. And I think the, you know, we don't have the context of the time we'll probably need to, to frame what it means, but there's no question that uh, Dusty Baker was brought in on the heels of something, uh, a scan- one of the greatest scandals in baseball in a hundred years. And on top of that, he, he was the turnaround executive. He had to come in and try to write the ship, a very tough uh, circumstance. And even when they win, you know, they, of course, there's going to be teams that are, and fan bases that are rightfully upset about, well, what about all the other years, you know, and, and that doesn't erase what happened in that year where teams were beat or lost or, uh, or they had this unfair advantage. So, you know, I, I think Dusty can do a lot to write that ship in terms of someone who likes to pull the lessons uh, from these experiences, someone who wasn't there, someone who could speak to as an opponent. And someone who could elevate it to something about forgiveness and moving forward. But uh, I think it's going to take a long time for many fan bases to do that. And the game should always keep vigilance. Uh, you know, we have, because we have Pitchcom, right? I mean, I talked to Bob Belvin and the Padres, like, I don't really like why we have Pitchcom, but I get it. And it, it just tells you like how things have already changed around it because we have to continue to stay ahead of people who will cut corners. Yeah, my sense is I process this, you know, trying to figure out the last 48 hours, what does this all mean for the Astros? And then we got the, you know, the announcement for about the special committee that's going to vote on players for the Hall of Fame. And among those are Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds. I think, you know, that the Astros are are going to be viewed by a lot of fans as comps to Bonds and Clemens, where on one hand, when I talk to, uh, you know, a lot of your peers, about, you know, the greatest baseball player they ever saw. Most of them, nearly all of them, Doug, will always say to me, Barry Bonds. Uh, And at the same time, when you talk about the steroid era and you talk to fans, the first name uh, or the the first of two names that they'll bring up are Bonds and Clemens. (laughs) And I think this is kind of what the the Astros, you know, the 2017 Astros, that's how they're going to be remembered. That's how a lot of the players are going to be remembered, where you're never going to be able to fully separate the accomplishments of these unbelievably great players from what happened in 2017. Is that fair? It is fair. And, and it's unfortunate. And some of that, like you talk about the storage, well, those were choices those players made. And because it shrouded doubt and clouded everything, not only selfishly in their own accomplishments, but also for the game, which is the tragedy of it all. And and underscores how selfish it really was, because even today we have questions about like, well, is this guy clean? Is, is this, these are the questions. And, uh, and so that is the tremendous fallout of, you know, those personal sort of personal choices that players make, even whatever pressures they're ordered to perform because it affects everyone around. And so you're going to always have this kind of dichotomy about like, well, he's a good player, but I don't know, maybe he's just a good performer. I don't really know what he really does. And then you have the same thing on championships. Like, what does it mean? Because now we're, we have to contextualize it in something that happened years ago that still is having a tremendous impact on the game. And that's, you know, that's what happened, but you can't put that back. You know, that's, that's why you want to try to make better choices in the beginning. Because now we're going to be dealing this for the games that always be colored by this. And hopefully it comes out with better lessons and better ways to continue to get fairness. However, we're going to always have 
the forces pushing against how to, you know, cut corners. And as my dad would say from Trinidad, uh, shortcuts lead to long cuts, right? So if you want to, and this is what we're dealing with the long cuts now as a, as a community around baseball, and it's, it's categorically unfair for the choices of a few, but here we are and we're going to have to figure out how to do better. The greatest pitcher that I ever saw in a postseason, I think the greatest pitching uh, performance of any pitcher in a postseason will always stand, I think, is Madison Bumgarner uh, in 2014 with what he did, pitching more than 50 innings for the Giants as they won that World Series. Uh, and that'll be the legacy for him and, and for that team. For the 22 Astros, I actually think that the pitching of the entire staff, from the first guy to the end, that was the greatest performance by a pitching staff that we've ever seen. You know, in my opinion, uh, you know, the, the great work of, of Framber Valdez, uh, you know, uh, Christian Javier with what he did, Justin Verlander getting his first win in the World Series. Doug, in that unbelievable bullpen, I think that's what the 22 Astros are going to be remembered specifically on the field for. What do you think? As they should. Their pitching was phenomenal. And what's interesting is you go back to the Royals, which kind of, you know, 2015, they set the tone around, you know, okay, we're going to have this really great back end, three, you know, three in a row. I mean, their starters weren't necessarily Legion of Doom, but they were good. But now you look at the Astros, they really had both. They had they had a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth guy to go with an incredible starting pitching staff with Christian Javier, who, by the way, threw a no-hitter <laughs> as their fourth starter. So that's completely an embarrassment of riches. They had a great pitching staff. And you combine that with the fact that they actually catch the ball. They had very good defense. And then fine, the hitting is a bonus, you know, and and it's good enough, certainly, uh, because they put the ball in play and put a lot of pressure on teams. So they were just, they were the best team, you know, and it's nice to see like, all right, you know, all right, we we have the underdog, those stories are great, but the Astros were just that good. And, and they had to do a lot and had to play their best game to knock off a Phillies team that felt destined and ordained and were absolutely on fire and unbeatable at home. Once they took two out of three, in Philly, you were like, I think this team is, you know, really a next level team. And they were. What do you think it felt like for Jordan Alvarez to hit that three run homer, which essentially clinched the World Series? I mean, I, you know, I think there was some pressure on him for sure, because, you know, everybody got to the point they know this guy is a great hitter and he's become, he's no longer like a best kept secret, you know, by the end of the season. I mean, I know Jason Stark was like, this is my MVP. He was saying that in spring training. So Alvarez, you know, maybe in the market, he's not getting quite the attention, but slowly as the playoffs started to percolate, you heard comparisons to David Ortiz. I mean, that's, that's like legendary, right? So I don't know, you know, how he took that, but there was an expectation that was probably pretty heavy on him and he was struggling. And, but that hit showing, you know, goes back to your point about pitching. They only needed one hit because once they had any lead, the bullpen, you know, was unbelievable. I mean, Verlander was the only one who really gave it up in, in game one, but the bullpen has just been phenomenal. So uh, Alvarez, once you give him more than one run lead, you're in a lot of trouble, and, and they proved that. What was it like for you uh, to see Dusty Baker be win his first World Series as a manager? Oh, man, it was it was like, a, a, it would be truly a father figure winning. I mean, it was like my dad winning. And um, I think I have a lot of feelings towards Dusty because when I played for him in 2003, after I got traded from Texas, 
uh, that off season, I lost my father. Uh, he was he passed away the last game of the 2002 season, and that's the the day I got my 1,000th hit of my career. So I actually buried my dad with that baseball, and you know, so baseball and my family have always come together around painful moments, powerful moments, and the thing is. You know, everybody who knows me knows that I was a huge Philly fan growing up. Mike Schmidt, Steve Carlton, Gary Maddox. My first time I got my driver's license uh, that I could drive any distance, I drove to Veterans Stadium. <laughs> so, so that's how much I love the Phillies. And um, and becoming a Philly only in, enhanced that because Gary Maddox came to my wedding and I, I ended up loving this organization. They, You know, the front office, everybody, teammates, they came to my dad's funeral. They came to my wedding. Uh, that's how much love there is there. And so it's beyond just the childhood uh, that I was pushing back against for rooting for Dusty. <clears throat> it was also just the fact that they were my professional life as well and even my post-career life. So, um, so I had to push that aside and I just wrote an article I'm going to post today about how I had this, I had to push the loyalty aside of, of like my childhood and my professional life to kind of see Dusty as the, the greater story, the more important victor in this. Um, I'm certainly never root against the Phillies, but I think the idea that Dusty's significance in winning was so important on so many different levels, uh, and be it on, you know, on a matter of race, knowing that the, the the dearth of black managers and opportunity and the fact that he got his job, by the way, on the heels of the comments by Al Campanis, the very controversial about black talent and opportunity. That's how Dusty got his first coaching job. And so he's, you know, he had a good relationship with Al Campanis and talks about it, but that moment was how he got in. And there was always this feeling of, well, if he's not successful, it, it becomes an assumption about, black candidacy, right? And maybe fair or unfair, but that is the feeling a lot of times when you're first or only, right? If I don't make it, then people are going to perceive this as like, see, you know, or if you, if you're there and don't make it, it's like a, you know, okay, that's, that's what affirmative action, the negatives of affirmative action, right? see this guy never deserved it. So you're always battling against being deserving and, you know, all these, or, or just get in the door in the first place. And Dusty, because he transcends seven decades, you're talking about the heels of the civil rights movement, right? Fair housing and all these things into the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. So he spans everything from, you know, the Civil Rights Act to George Floyd and and mentored all people in all walks of life throughout with a consistent message of belief and love and common shared humanity. I mean, so... Of course, you want that guy to win, right? I mean, because it is so much bigger than Houston, trash cans, you know, Phillies, loyalties, childhoods. I, I found him to be so compelling on that level. And so many people were rooting for him uh, that transcend the entire society on every walk of life of every identity. So for those reasons, I thought that was the greater <laughs> the greater power of like who I'm who I'm supporting in this. So, and yes, the idea of rooting against the Astros, but for Dusty, here's the thing. Dusty is the perfect ambassador to take that 2017 story and turn it into the lessons we all need to hear. And that's why, you know, he's suited for that. Now, the frustration can be that, as I talked about black candidacy, there's a lot of feelings of like, well, all right, the only job you're going to get is when you're cleaning up, right? You're going to clean up this guy's mess. You didn't do it, but you got to come back here. And here's a guy who got fired multiple times after 90 wins and didn't even get interviewed, right? So that was a slap in the face in a lot of ways for from 
from the standpoint of baseball to, you know, I, I took it personally, that Dusty didn't have a job and was always categorized as like old school and not analytical, but all those things coming together. And one brief story, you know, I know I've been rambling for a minute here, but one story I want to underscore is, so in two, so when I got traded to the Phillies, and this is 1997 off season, that, that's the day my grandfather passed away, at least the night before. Now my mom's family migrated from from North Carolina, at least the the aunts and uncles of my mom, to Philadelphia. So they moved from North Carolina to Philadelphia. So when I got traded there, I found out from my great aunts and uncles who love baseball that they were boycotting the Phillies. They were like, we're not, we can, we'll watch, you know, radio, but we are not setting foot in any stadium that they play in wow. because they remembered in 1947 when Jackie Robinson broke in and Ben Chapman was Ben Chapman that they, they would never support this team. And they watched after that and they saw other stories and Dick Allen, they were like, no way. So I got traded there and my great aunt tank who loves baseball said, okay, okay, I'm going to show up now. It took 50 years for them to not even, first of all, they didn't get the apology, but they finally let it go. That is the power of representation and the power of restorative justice that you don't even just by walking in the room with someone who was not supposed to be there or not allowed to be there can transform entire generations of people. So that's why Dusty Baker is important. And that's why his success means so much. Uh, where is this article going to be posted, Doug? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Uh, right now, it's just going to be my website. You know, I'm going to put it out there. Okay. Today. So, um, yeah. Because I know, you know, you write pieces with New York Times, you write pieces for ESPN, and I'm curious. I, I can't wait to read that. And I'm so glad you use the word love. Because I think that is the word that applies to Dusty better than any other word. Uh, when you have a conversation with him, you know this better than I do because you play with him. I've known him for a lot of years. But he'll tell story like he connects with people. He loves people. And he looks at people beyond their batting average or whether or not they can hit home runs or, you know, what he can give them as a, as a manager. He looks at them as people which is why I always felt when, when, and I hear this to this day, you'll hear people in baseball say, well, he doesn't really get pitching. He doesn't know when to make changes. He doesn't get this. He doesn't get that. I'm like, no, no, no. You're missing what he does get. And that is that he has people playing for him. And just two small examples of that from, from this postseason. And I've told the story on the podcast before about how when uh, he was in New York for the ALCS and he goes to St. Patrick's Cathedral because that's what he does whenever he goes back to New York. And he gets a rosary for Trey Mancini, who is uh, his new first baseman who's struggling, right? Who's not hitting. And so, but he thinks of him. And so he gets this gift for him. And it was Trey Mancini told me that story. And you could see in his face how much that meant to him that his manager, you know, who, for whom he really hasn't contributed anything since he joined the team, thought of him in that moment. And then in the end, of course, Trey Mancini uh, gives back to Dusty. And then Justin Verlander, you know, in an era in which, you know, the analytic community, we don't care about wins anymore. We're not worried about getting to a five-inning benchmark. Dusty understood what it meant for Verlander to get his first career win in a World Series game. And so he uh, sticks with him through those five innings uh, in game five. And Verlander saw this, that massive hug he gave Dusty, at the end of game five, 
and then see it in Justin's face, what that meant to him. That's the stuff that Dusty understands about the people because of his love for people that he connects with in a, in a way that uh, almost nobody else that I've seen managing in baseball has, and not to a degree, because that's who Dusty is, Doug. I, I've never seen anybody so skilled and intuitive about people than Dusty Baker. I, it just, I've never seen it. And, you know, I, I mentioned I played from my father had passed away. I was not a great place. I let my hair grow to epic proportions. And one day Dusty said, look, man, I know you're going through some tough stuff, but you need to braid it, roll it, or cut it. <laughs> you know, he gave, He's like, you can twist it. <laughs> so, you know, he was just, he looked out for you. And I don't know how he has the bandwidth to think yeah. about people that deeply. Like I remember reading about how Joey Votto was sick and he brought like matzo ball soup to the, you know, you know, it's like, I mean, just like, and he kissed him on the floor and remember Joey Votto was like, that was love, right? He, he just transcends all these identities and, and in a good way, right? You be who you are, you know, you, we all have our stories, but we still can be so much stronger together. And that's what is so clear about, you know, the fact that he, he builds a family, truly a family. And, and that's why I, I'm always saying how sports has such an opportunity to inform larger society in that, you know, we're playing with teammates from, especially baseball teammates come in with spring training from all over the world. You got to figure out how to come together. You got to put all this stuff aside and figure it out. And you also have to uphold rules and traditions and laws and things that are supposed to be applied fairly to everyone. That's a pretty good society. That's a society I want to live in. Right. And Dusty is someone that is the aspirational existence of this, right? I always call him the godfather of baseball. That, that's exactly who he is. He's the godfather of baseball because he leads a spiritual life. He leads it with love and humanity and everybody feels like his son, you know, everybody. And I don't know how he does it, but, um, but he does it. And I, I look, I had a show, I, I have a show called classes in session uh, that I do on marquee sports network for two years now. And I, and I know what to do the first episode. I called him. He's like, I want you to be successful. Whatever I need to do, I will be on your first show. And he just like, he he set up a camera in his kitchen. He was just like, whatever. And that was the best episode. The guy like talked for an hour, him and Herm Edwards, it was out of control. So, you know, that's what Dusty is able to do and how he has the the room to do it. And the, the, the bigness of his heart uh, is incredible, which is why like, that's not just what baseball needs. That's what the world needs truly. All right, Doug. Thanks for doing this. Always great to talk with you. All right, Buster. Thank you, man. Speaking of Dusty Baker, here's what Justin Verlander had to say about his manager after winning the World Series. A great feeling, you know, it, to, to have him, you know, he's a Hall of Fame manager, a great person, more importantly, and, uh, you know, to be able to be the team that was able to pull it off for him. I mean, just, I know how much it means to him, and it means just as much to us. And, uh, couldn't be happier for him. Couldn't be happy for us. Couldn't be happy for the city. I mean, what, a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a storybook season. Justin, Justin, we talked all year about how you, you were doing so well, and you're like, too soon, too soon. I'm not talking about my paths and everything until the end. So now that it's the end, I mean, what can you put into words what this whole path was like for you, the two years and everything that you went through? I mean, if I could have a, a a pen and paper and have written out exactly what I would have wished would happen, you know, through my rehab and my first season back from Tommy John, 
don't know if I would have changed a thing from the story that actually played out. Um, just an amazing ride, an amazing feeling, uh, and I've just been trying to be present and enjoying it the entire time, and uh, now it's time to celebrate it. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, a reporter and a producer for MLB.com. Sarah, how you doing this morning? Your first day after being away from baseball. Because I know the day after the World Series, Sunday, the day after the World Series, you're busy. It's like crazy. But Monday, it's the first day. It was like the off season. How did you handle that with no baseball except for tweeting about winter ball? Well, I'm always watching Lee Dome. Uh, the Dominican Winter League, you can get on MLB.tv now. It's so accessible. The games are so much fun to watch. So I did watch, although there was only one game last night. But, you know, it's disorienting. I love this. And we've talked about how I'm always the person, like Alec Bregman post game, who says, all right, I'm ready for spring training. Let's go. And I know most normal people, I acknowledge, want to, you know, take a rest, do something else. I'm not in that boat, but I understand and I'm glad that we get to rest. All right. Everybody who is in the baseball industry has a to-do list of things that they need to do that they've been able to procrastinate and push it off because, like, oh, I'm sorry, I've got baseball to work on. Give me something from your to-do list uh, as the offseason begins that uh, you, you now have no excuse but to dive into. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we're talking. I'm sitting in my room at home staring at piles of clothes that need to be put away, things I need to sort through. So there is a lot there for sure. I also, I mean, I love to read. I never get a chance to read for pleasure during the season. So I had a goal. Okay, in the past, I've done 20 books as a goal during the, during the year. Uh, and I have not gotten there since I've been working in baseball. This year, I tried to be more realistic. I did 12, one per month, knowing that I wouldn't read any during April to October. I've read one book this year. So somehow I have to read 11 books between now and November 8th and uh, December 31st. So we'll see if I'm able to do that. Nice. Well, which book? Give me a book. Well, one of the books I'm reading, I can't believe I never read, was Timmy's book about uh, I love, I'm fascinated by sacrifice flies. So I started that right before the season to kind of get into baseball mode again. Not that I'm ever really out of it, but I'm going to read that. And then The Devil in the White City had been on my list forever, uh, based in Chicago, based right near where I went to school and uh, was really popular for a while. So going to get through that as well. But I'm taking suggestions. If people want to tweet at me, I'll take them. <laughs> That's awesome. I bet you're going to get a bunch of suggestions. Good. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is three. So we have to talk about Jordan Alvarez and no disrespect to Jeremy Pena, who became the first position player to win World Series MVP. He was outstanding all postseason. We've talked about him, but we need to talk about that Jordan Alvarez home run in game six. 
So it was one of those home runs, like the Bryce Harper home run, when the Phillies clinched the NLCS, where it really did feel inevitable. You knew during that pitching change, this is your Don's moment. So how much did I have that sense that it might happen? I started typing the stat out, the stat I'm about to read, during the pitching change. So Jordan Alvarez is the only player in postseason history with multiple go-ahead home runs in the sixth inning or later with his team trailing in a career. He entered game six with two. They're both this postseason, the walk-off home run in game one of the ALDS, and then the go-ahead home run in game two. He now has three of those, and they were all this postseason. No one has ever had multiple of those in a postseason career. And he had three in one October plus November. Wow. Number two. Number two is 083. That was the Astros bullpen ERA this postseason. We talked about the pitching. We compared them to Pedro Martinez. And I want to focus specifically on the bullpen. So there have been 94 teams in postseason history to throw at least 35 innings. So that's a pretty low qualifier. That's going to include teams that didn't even make it to the World Series. We want a good sample size here. So that 083 bullpen ERA they had was the lowest among all of those teams. They had a 126 opponent batting average, 215 opponent on base, 208 opponent slugs, and 075 whips. All of those were the lowest of any bullpen to throw at least 35 innings in a single postseason. I mean, they were unreal, and that ended up being the difference maker. Number one. Number one is 40. So we have to talk about Dusty. I feel like the entire baseball world was just so relieved and happy for him. I was so excited to hear him say post-game, now they don't have to talk about this narrative anymore. I mean, that was such a dusty reaction. So the 40 is for the years in between World Series titles. So we talk a lot about how this was his first title as a manager, but we know, and you know, growing up a Dodgers fan, of course, that he did win World Series as a player in 1981. So the 40 years were the years in between World Series titles from 1982 to 2021. That is the most years between any two World Series titles for any individual winning as a player or a manager in baseball history. And the prior longest stretch was 29 years by Bob Lemon who won as a player in 1948 with Cleveland and then was the manager when the Yankees won in 1978. So not only did he stick around and finally win one, he stuck around 11 more years than anyone else in this kind of situation. And he talked post-game about how he's kind of glad it took so long because he would have been gone and instead he was able to to stick around and affect so many people's lives. And that's Dusty Baker. And I, it's amazing we're able to quantify that. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to, to see what uh, he decides to do, what Jim Crane 
you know, the owner of the Astros decides to do about uh, about Dusty and managing moving forward. You know, he can't make a wrong decision. There's no wrong decision he could make in this situation. All right. Uh, when you worked at ESPN, one of your colleagues uh, was someone known as Bonds. Give a listen. Hello, Langs. It's fellow researcher Mike Bonzani. I just ate some fruit snacks I took home from the trailer at the ballpark. So naturally, I thought of you. Sarah, thank you so much for making me a better baseball person. I thought I loved baseball as much as anyone possibly could. But then I met you. And your passion and enthusiasm made me fall in love with this sport even more. I've never met someone who loves baseball more than you. And I've worked with Tim Kirkchen for a decade. You are such an inspiration to our baseball family at ESPN and MLB, to baseball fans everywhere, and to anyone else afflicted by this terrible disease. You are the hardest working person I have ever met. I am so lucky that I got to work with you every day to get to know you and to see your energy up close. Baseball is the best, but you're better. Yeah, so Sarah, I think it's been well established on this uh, on the podcast that you are number one uh, for baseball enthusiasm, and Tim Kirchin's number two. I mean, think about that. Like, every person who's come on, like, Tim Kirchin is always the standard that people are trying to beat, and you've done it. You know, he may have, he may have conquered K2, but you got Mount Everest. No, I refuse. I appreciate it. I truly appreciate it. Thank you to Bonds for the very kind words. Of course, one of my uh, great colleagues when I was at ESPN and still a great friend got to see him in Philly just last week. But I appreciate it. I am glad to even be in the sentence with Timmy. The idea that people think of enthusiasm and excitement over baseball and that they even think of me with Tim Kirchner, I will take that. I mean, when we were uh, walking into the stadium after game uh, game four, so the day of game five in Philly, you know, asking him how many no-hitters have you seen, and him very excitedly counting off, seeing I believe it was Mike Witt's perfect game, was his first no-hitter in person, the energy he had telling that story with no warning, just out of the blue. I mean, that's Timmy. And the way that no matter what you ask him, he has a story. Someone talked about it. I mean, that's what I'm getting reading his book. And it's amazing reading it and hearing it in his voice. So I appreciate it. And I'm honored to be in the conversation. But I reject the premise that I can possibly <laughs> be ahead of him. There is no way on earth. Sorry. You know, America's voted. Baseball people have voted. You're ahead of Tim. And that's just the way it goes. All right, Sarah. Thanks for doing this. Uh, we've got a podcast coming up. We talk about the offseason. We'll be in touch. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals and the hottest tickets. Experience it live. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, mate. Welcome to the show. Whoa! Welcome to the show, baby. You're in the show with David Schoenfield. David Schoenfield writes about baseball for ESPN. Dave, how you doing? Are you all recovered from the <laughs> season? Uh, yeah, a lot of baseball, but it's always the best month of the year. And I'll say this, Buster, at least I don't have to go out and shovel some snow today. Well, uh, yeah, or uh, go to, you know, some of our colleagues have gone to Las Vegas because the general manager, because the lockout, you know, was uh, pushed everything back a little while. It's like the World Series could have ended on Sunday and the general manager's meetings are starting right away. And while all the, you know, the Phillies and the, and the Astros have been playing the World Series, all the other teams have been waiting for the starting gun for their offseason, and that starts now. So we'll get into some of what's going on uh, coming up. It's like baseball is not going to stop. I do want to take us back in time and have a conversation about what happened in game six when Rob Thompson, the Phillies manager, had a decision about whether or not to pull Zach Wheeler from the game because he needed someone to get out Jordan Alvarez, left-handed slugger for the Astros, who you know has done such damage during the during the postseason when we talked to Rob during the course of the World Series. He referred to him as the big guy, right? <laughs> like he was the one guy he didn't want to have uh, beat him. So he makes a decision to bring Alvarado into the game, pull Wheeler out of the game. Alvarez hits that monster three-run homer to straightaway center field. After the game, Rob Thompson talked about that choice. Rob, could you uh, take us through the thought process and the decision to go take Wheeler out and go with Alvarado in that situation? Yeah, I thought – you know, I thought Wheels still had really good stuff. It wasn't about that. It was just I thought the the matchup was better with Alvarado on Alvarez at that time. Here was Zach Wheeler when he was asked about that. Winner go home right there, and uh, I mean that's a tough total swallow, but it's ultimately you know Tom's call, and that's the call he made. Did you think he was going to come out there? No, honestly, he caught me off guard a little bit. Yeah, and I thought David was a, a absolute parallel to what happened in the 2020 World Series when Blake Snell was pulled from the World Series. Surprise from the starting pitcher at that decision, which I think Rob Thompson probably had scripted going into the game, and we'd actually seen him use it earlier in the World Series. What'd you think? Yeah, look, it's easy to second guess after the fact. So you want to analyze the process more than the result. And like you said, this is the move Rob Thompson had been doing all through the playoffs, bringing Alvarado in in the middle innings to face, you know, the heart of the order. And in this case, a big left-handed batter. So I didn't have that problem. It was consistent with the way he'd been handling the bullpen. On the other hand, I think there's something to be saying. Zach Wheeler is our ace, along with Aaron Nola, their co-aces. And if we're going to win the World Series, this is the guy that's going to help us the most to get there. And you got to almost put a little trust and faith in those guys. This isn't Blake Snell. Blake Snell had a long history of he gets to 70, 80 pitches of just blowing up. That move, I think, made a lot more sense than this, than this one. Zach Wheeler his velocity was still strong, unlike some other games in the postseason where he had kind of started to get tired. He still looked good. I know there was first and third one out. I think I would have stuck with Zach Wheeler in this in this case. 
I think you agree with me that these managers in the postseason, they always get viewed through the prism of the results. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, in the end, that's if, all that if matters. If it doesn't work out, then they made a big mistake. If it yes. does work out, then they're an absolute genius. I've joked, I've told the story before on the pod about uh, talking about that with Bruce Bochy, how he would he, he would uh, ping pong back and forth from genius to complete idiot from yes. day to day during the postseason based on whether or not a move worked. The one thing I would say about this, about the you know scripting out, uh, you know, looking for potential matchups, you know, that's done now. And that's how baseball is managed in, in this era uh, is that the players change. Like the Jose Alvarado in the last few games of the World Series was not the Alvarado yes. that we saw earlier in the postseason. And the Zach Wheeler, to your point, that we saw in game six was not the Zach Wheeler that we saw in game two. He was a completely different pitcher. And yes. that's that's the great variable with these choices and these scripts. No, no doubt. And that was the big thing with the Blake Snell decision back in 2020 was who do you bring in? Nick Anderson, who'd really been struggling that postseason in relief yeah. for Tampa Bay, who he'd been great in the regular season, but had been used a lot. So that was more about why you bringing in this guy as opposed to just bringing out Snell there. So yeah, there's always layers and you're right. Alvarado had really struggled obviously his previous outing. Plus, you still got to get through this whole game. And I know the Philadelphia bullpen had been much better than expected, but you're still looking at four innings, you know, just to get through nine innings by bringing him in that early. So that's an issue as well. And another reason, I think, to leave Wheeler. But they're just some of it is just Buster let your best guys compete. You know, I know we all ripped Dusty Baker when he left Verlander in in game one. And I thought that, that was a mistake. Verlander looked tired. But there's something to say, and I want my guy out there competing, and I trust these guys. Maybe that means something. We heard Wheeler. He, he was surprised he came out of that game. Yeah, uh, well, without a doubt. All right, now that the Phillies have been eliminated, uh, you know, of course, a lot of questions about what's going to happen with them and some of the moves the offseason, Bryce Harper with his elbow. Here's Bryce Harper talking about losing the World Series. I mean, anytime you lose, it's, it's not fun, um, no matter where you're at or, um, you know, what situation or, or what round you're in. Can you put into perspective the fact that still this was an 87 team, two wins away from winning the World Series, the ride you took the photo beyond? Yeah, uh, we didn't get it done. We didn't finish it. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're 87 win team or 100 win team. It don't matter. Um, we didn't get it done. It seemed like, which I, I love, Dave, the fact that uh, it, it did seem like that Phillies fans appreciated this team for what uh, it provided in the month of October, you know, the excitement that it provided. Uh, and yet it's interesting that, you know, even though this club went that far, uh, when we get to next spring, Guess what? They're probably still going to be viewed as the third best team in the National League East. It all starts over. Yeah, no, I mean, the Braves are, you know, I think they're going to be the favorite in that division. They're obviously loaded. The Mets are going to have to rebuild their pitching staff with all their free agents. They've already signed Edwin Diaz, but they're going to do it, right? Steve Cohen's going to spend the money. So, yeah, the Phillies have a lot of ground to make up. So, I'm curious, Buster, I think their big move would be to go after one of those free agent shortstops, uh, move Bryson Stott over to second base, you know, uh, maybe get a legitimate leadoff hitter, Trey Turner. He might look pretty good in a Phillies uniform. 
Yeah, that would be, I, I agree with you. I, I wonder, and it's interesting because Stott absolutely uh, solidified the defense at shortstop yes. exactly when they needed it. I think you and I both agree on that. Um, but in the postseason, his, his, he wasn't much of a factor offensively. Like that was a hole in their lineup once you got to facing the best pitching. And I do wonder about how Bryce Harper's elbow is going to factor into what they do. Because uh, yes. if, if, in fact, he needs, you know, a Tommy John surgery, he could be back in the second half of next season for sure, contribute uh, offensively. But if that's the case, and they probably need some help, so maybe going after a Carlos Correa would be a way to go. Yeah, and they have some money. Um, you know, you look yeah, at their payroll. $80 million dollars coming off their payroll uh, right. at the end of the season. And they got an owner, John Middleton, who he wants to win, and he's proven he's willing to spend money. And they have a, a GM and Dave Dombrowski who has proven he can go out and get these big-name players. So it just feels like everything's aligning that the Phillies will make a big move this offseason. The Astros, it seems, have a much easier job <laughs> in trying to reconstruct their team for next year because so much of that pitching is coming back, right? Yeah. Maybe the biggest question is going to be what happens with the general manager, James Click, with the manager, Dusty Baker. Um, look, I don't know what decision Jim Crane is going to make. I do know this. He's very bold. He's not afraid of making choices. That's what I kept on hearing from folks within the Astros organization it's pretty clear that he feels like he could uh, get somebody who's a little bit more aggressive than James Click. Uh, I would not be surprised to see them go and make a move, call the Brewers and say, look, David Stearns, we used to work here. His wife is from the Houston area. Uh, we'd like to bring him in. He runs baseball operations. James Clicks gets an extension working under David Stearns. This is all speculation. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he has a conversation with Dusty Baker and, and basically says to Dusty, look, you're not going to do this forever. There's not a better time uh, for you to 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 move on than this great victory lap that we just had. What do you think? Yeah, look, I can't disagree with any of that. Certainly, Dusty, it sounds like he wants to stay in the game and keep managing. So I don't know. Yeah, is that decision ultimately his? Like, if he wants to come back, how do you not bring him back? Right. You know, yeah. but you know, um, but you're right. Jim Crane, a very hands-on owner. He's going to do, he's going to do something. And you're right. The the roster, they're fine. I think they have the money to make a big move. I think even though they won the world series, they could use another bat. You know, they didn't get anything from DH. Uh, maybe they look to, to sign an outfielder, you know, and keep Alvarez at the DH role. But, yeah, for a, a team that's set, it's still going to be an interesting offseason for them. Yeah, and the biggest question, I think, on the roster probably, um, because you're right, you know, that Michael Brantley, you, you're going to want to find a, you know, find a bat in the middle of the lineup, depending on what happens with him, uh, is going to – the biggest question is going to be around Justin Verlander. Yeah. And I think Jim loves Justin. He's got a great personal relationship with Justin, but I also think he has a ceiling on where he's going to go on a contract. And we saw Max Scherzer last year get $43 million a year in a three-year deal from the Mets. Uh, I think if Verlander goes to, to Crane and says, look, it's going to take 130 over three for me to stay here, they'll move on. And they'll say, Justin, we love you, and we're not going to be the team that pays that if I'm guessing on a ceiling, it's like two years and $70 million. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I agree. And I think 
from a baseball standpoint, they have the rotation depth. They have Hunter Brown coming up who grew up idolizing Verlander and looks just like him pitching. um, And he's ready to step in. So I think that money is better used on offense. So I'm with you. I would find to predict. I think it's Justin Verlander's with another team next year. Yep. Texas Rangers is a team to watch. Uh, there because they're going to be out in the marketplace uh, looking for pitching as we talked about with Bruce Bochy last week. All right. Uh, yesterday, Perry Manassian, the general manager of the Angels, announced that Shohei Otani will not be traded this winter. <laughs> uh, that's not a surprise. You know, you spoke with folks with other teams who basically said, if you were looking for maximum value for Otani, they should have traded him in July when they flirted a little bit with the idea but I understand, uh, you know, why the Angels are doing this because they're in a state of flux. Perhaps a new owner coming in. If I'm the, someone coming in to buy the team, I want the opportunity to talk with Otani about an extension. What did you think of this news? Yeah, you know, no surprise. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a PR hit if you trade him now. Now it's a little different story. This upcoming July, if you're 20 games out again and you have to trade him and you have, you've tried to sign him to an extension. Uh, but look, I think that day is going to come. Cause I don't think the angels are going to be that good next year. I don't think Otani look, he's made enough veiled comments about how he feels about playing for the angels right now. Um, you know, he specifically in that uh, report out of Japan, you know, said the last two months were not fun that they were hard to get through. So, but you can't trade him. It's Shohei Otani. You got to at least roll the dice and hope you have a good season next year. Edwin Diaz signs the biggest contract ever for relief pitcher, five years and $102 million. And I'm going to give you some nuanced analysis that I want to see if you agree with or if you think it's completely out of my mind. I think that for the Mets, this was the right move to make for owner Steve Cohen, the billionaire, richest owner in baseball. This was the right move to make for any other team. This deal would have been crazy. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking about what would have been his max offer from another team. So he's the first 20 million a year reliever. The highest was Liam Hendricks at 18 million a year, but that was only for three years. That was a three year, 54 million. This is double that. So yeah, I don't think, Diaz gets more than what 70, maybe, maybe gets a four year, $70 million deal from another team. So they way overpaid, but I'm with you. They needed him. And this is the first step because DeGrom's going to opt out. Chris Bassett's going to opt out. Taiwan Walker's going to opt out. So they got to rebuild their rotation as well. Plus what Seth Lugo's a free agent. They got to rebuild almost their entire pitching staff. And that this is step one. I'm curious to see what steps two, three, four, and five are going to be. Yeah, the luxury. This is a luxury that if you're uh, the Mets, you can take on. If you're any other team and you've seen how relief pitchers go, the volatility yeah. of relief pitching in the game, no way would you do a deal like that. <laughs> we, we, I mean, look at the Houston Astros with the right. guys. They, they built this unbelievably uh, historically great bullpen on these pieces and parts, guys who are cast-offs. For a lot less than twenty million dollars a year. That's what I was just gonna say. Look, do you want? Do, look, do any of these smart analytic GMs want to spend their money on a twenty million dollar a year closer? No way. You much prefer to put that money into a starting pitcher or a premium offensive player. But the Mets, 
you know, they have the money, their payroll next year is going to be absolutely ridiculous, but Steve Cohen can afford to go over the luxury tax. That's not a roadblock for the bets. Isn't it amazing that trumpets seemingly would play a factor? <laughs> <laughs> like he's a popular figure. It's all a scene. It's it's paying for entertainment. It's like the trumpets, like put it over the top for the Mets to, to retain Edwin Diaz beyond the fact that he's a great reliever. Uh, okay. You, you mentioned some of the opt-outs are seeing them all over baseball. Uh, Anthony Rizzo leaves the Yankees, Carlos Correa, uh, Xander Bogarts. Any of those jump out to you? No, I mean, look, I think we're seeing, you know, after the lockout, after the pandemic, I think we're going to see teams willing and able to spend, you yep. know. So, of course, all these guys are going to opt out, you know, and all those guys had good years. Why would you not opt out? You know, so the money's going to be there. I think we're going to, you know, we just saw one unbelievable contract with Diaz. I think we're going to see a lot of big money spent this winter. All right. This is the deal that jumped out to me, which gave us, for me, a barometer of what we'll see this winter. Zach Eflin. Okay. Zach Eflin has been a terrific, uh, has been a really, you know, a solid major league pitcher. He got, uh, he was affected by injuries this year. When he came back, he worked out of the bullpen. So it wasn't like a great launch year for him into free agency. He had a $15 million player option and he turned it down. Yeah. Right. Coming off what was not a perfect year. Because I think he knows there's good money out there <laughs> this offseason. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, exactly. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets three years at $15 million a year. You know, right. even though, like you said, he had a knee injury this year. But, you know, he's a solid, reliable starter. If you, you can put him in the bullpen if needed. But, yeah, you're right. And there's so many good young players in the game right now who are still making basically the minimum salary that teams can afford to pay even these middle-of-the-road players like Eflin a lot of money. There's room in payrolls to do this. So, yeah, he's going to get it. All right, Dave. Good to talk with you. We'll be talking with you during the winter. All right, Buster. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how are you doing this week? I'm well, Buster. How are you? It, uh, I'm doing well, and partly because just before we started the podcast today, we found out that Taylor uh, has a new dog, and this dog has a special name, which you, as the chief executive of our weekly quiz, uh, I think you're going to gravitate toward right away. Taylor, you want to tell him? The new dog is named Dolly Madison Schwenk. So a little bit of a presidential connection, uh, American history connection there. So, uh, yeah, Buster, good call with the uh, with our intro song there for Todd. Very nice. And Todd, I was, you know, right away, I asked him about the connection and why it was Dolly Madison. And and he just said, you know, he didn't. uh, Well, I won't even let let Taylor (laughs) explain. But I mean, Taylor, you you just felt like you just kind of picked out the name. And I explained to him that Dolly Madison, when you go to the White House on the tour, she uh, is given a place of special prominence because of a a, a very important act. Uh, Yes, Todd. And I know you know this because you love history like I do. Well, she so 
we picked it because, well, we just like the name Dolly and then we didn't want people to think like, oh, they're Dolly Parton people. Uh, Dolly Parton's fine, but that's just not us. So I was like, oh, the only other Dolly I know is Dolly Madison. So maybe we make that connection. I checked out the Wikipedia page. She was a very uh, like a socialite first lady known for throwing parties and, you know, inviting members of both parties, uh, you know, political parties to her home. But Buster enlightened me that as the British were burning Washington in the War of 1812, she rescued a bunch of things from the White House, including the famous Lansdowne portrait of George Washington, the life-size iconic painting him putting his arm out, um, which is a phenomenal thing to see if you're in Washington, D.C. But that is very cool. And thank you to Buster for enlightening me there about my new dog's namesake. Todd, I knew you would know all that. Yeah, I mean, I think of Dolly Madison, which I don't often do, and uh, ice cream might come to mind, but certainly saving that iconic painting of George Washington as the British burned the White House in the War of 1812, which didn't actually take place in 1812, but that's another podcast for next year. (laughs) Very nice. All right, you, as we're talking with you, you're in your new studio, in your new place in Philadelphia. Uh, a place was uh, for, which for you almost became, you know, city of champions right away with the Phillies. I saw the pictures you you took down in Philadelphia during game three, four, and five. Uh, what was it like being there uh, in Philly for those games? So I went to game three. Um, and if you're and, in Philadelphia, uh, that's the game you wanted to go to. That was the game yeah. where they hit five home runs and took a two games to one lead in the series. Yeah, and it was electric, and I've said this before on the podcast. I recall being in Philly for the 93 World Series, that crazy 15-14 to game uh, that the Toronto Blue Jays won. Um, You know, came down here in 08 uh, for, I think it was game four. Joe Blanton hit a home run against the Tampa Bay Rays. Pitcher sitting home runs in the World Series. That seems very quaint, like Dolly Madison-like. But the atmosphere was electric. Things were going well with regard to packing up and getting ready for the move. So I came down here, went back up because I had to sign closing papers up in New York. So I had tickets for uh, the the, uh, no-hitter. Didn't wind up making it. But anyway, the move was completed on Saturday, just in time for the uh, Houston Astros to defeat the hometown Phillies. But uh, an interesting time to be moving here, to say the least. All right. You are uh, friends with one of the greatest Phillies fans ever. Uh, and I'm curious about his reaction to how this all played out with the Astros winning in six. Yeah. A shout out to my friend Jim Bennett, uh, an amazing illustrator uh, and a friend of mine since college days. So Buster, he used to uh, he used to haul me down to the vet back in the 80s you know, on a a hot July day, it's an encircled donut with no air circulation. Right. So anyway, um, he, um, he was more surprised. I think like most Phillies fan fans that this team went on the run that it did a very joyous sprint to an improbable world series matchup against, against Houston. And they came up short, but I think that uh, given the trajectory of the season and the expectations, oh, I don't know, the first week in October, last week in September, um, I don't think it, it stung as hard as 93 might have. No, no. I, and that was my sense of it too, was that uh, I hope that a lot of Phillies fans, unlike what we saw with the Mets or the Yankees at the end, there were a lot of folks saying, this was a lot of fun. This was a fun yeah. team, and this is something something to look forward to for 2023, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Buster, uh, you know, I have been in many stadiums at 
uh, probably 20 different World Series, 50 different World Series games, something like that. And, uh, you know, they are all special and the atmosphere is electric and in all of those places with very rare exception. And this place um, for game three was just absolutely rocking. Harper hit that home run place exploded it was a joyous night throughout so to your point earlier it was probably a pretty good night to be out there and um you know maybe the apex of the philly season uh and they've got something to build upon for next year certainly yep and we'll uh, we'll find out soon i think what they're going to be doing with bryce harper but yeah you got to experience the high watermark of of this uh, fun team and this great crowd that uh, developed citizens bank park all right let's get to this week's quiz the final question of the year. So here we go. Which one of the following Hall of Famers never wore his team nickname on his jersey at any point during his career? Wow. Was it A, Mike Schmidt? Was it B, A, Al Kaline? Was it C, Reggie Jackson? Or was it D, Babe Ruth? One of these guys, all Hall of Famers, never wore his team nickname on the front of his jersey at any point during his career. Mike Schmidt, Al Kaline, Reggie, 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 or the Bambino? Wow! Now I'm I'm thinking through that question. That's that is a that's a hard question. Sarah, you want to go first since it's a hard question? No. Give but Boston I more will. time to think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll go with A. I'll go. Oh, I'll go Reggie, Reggie, Reggie. Wow! Really. That's interesting because I, I, you know, <laughs> I, I must say that I, I'm going back and forth because I have to work back in my mind's eye when I see these b- different people in their home uniforms. I, I'm going to go Al Kaline, Todd. Well, Sarah, who was a little reticent about her answer, is the winner because it was Mike Schmidt who never wore the word Phillies across the front of his uniform. Al Kaline's Tigers wore the word Tigers. Oh, of course. Uh, I in the like early 1960s. Idiot. Reggie, well, he played on a number of teams, including the Angels, whose jersey said Angels back in the day, and a little curveball because Babe Ruth's uh, Braves jersey said Braves, and the Yankees actually wore the word Yankees on the road in the 1920s. So, Sarah, congratulations. Wow, that's a great way to finish up, Sarah. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Very well done. And again, you know, with the old adage, it's better to be lucky than good sometimes. And as I say every week, a 25% chance, uh, definitely in order. Man, uh, I, I, so I don't know. I, when I thought of Mike Smith immediately, it was like, no, I've seen fellas across. And then obviously I was dead wrong. I, what I saw was the P. Oh, and, the, and the powder blues that they wore the other night yep. got no hit. It, they didn't even matter. But uh, Mike Schmidt out there throwing a, a first pitch along the way and Anyway, there we have it. What a way to conclude the season. Very nice. All right, Todd, thanks for doing this. Always great talk with you. Thanks for the season, uh, and we will be in touch. Thank you, Buster. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Taylor, every week checking in. And thank you to all our listeners. So many people reach out on a weekly basis, especially on Twitter. I want to thank you all for uh, participating, for reaching out, and uh, let's get some rest. It was a great season, and I'm already looking forward to next season. Bleacher Tweets. 
Alrighty, Bleacher Tweets for a Tuesday. Bleacher Tweets are brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper the one fans deserve. First up, our friend Don Irvine. He writes, and now that Dusty has finally won a World Series, how much longer will he manage? My gut instinct is that they will make a change, uh, that Dusty's last game managing was game six of this year's World Series. Wow. And total speculation. Uh, I just I just have that feeling with this turnover that we're seeing with the top of the Houston food chain and their baseball operations department. I think they'll move on from Dusty, and I think Jim Crane will make it well worth his while. Very, very interesting. Senior B, Senior Betley writes in, if you told me the Astros would win the World Series without an RBI from Altuve, I would have said no way. Only one home run from Alvarez. No way. How great was Jeremy Pena? Yeah, Jose Altuve didn't have an RBI in the postseason. Think about that. Nuts. The entire postseason. That was absolutely crazy. Yeah, Jeremy Pena winning the uh, World Series MVP, the LCS MVP, the first position player ever to do that in one year. Uh, I, I mean, a rookie. Pretty incredible. I got to say, I think well, on Saturday after the win and, um, you know, he gets interviewed on on Fox and Carlos Correa is in the studio. I mean, just what a what a little sight that was. I wonder if Carlos yep. got any regrets there. Uh, Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit. Dusty Baker was often criticized for his bullpen management, but praised for his presence at the clubhouse. Ideally, you'd like to have both. But which do you think is more important to excel in? Mm. Boy, that is a great question. <laughs> I guess it just depends on the team, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if if I think in some cases, uh, especially with teams that are like 500 teams, I, I think being great in the clubhouse is really important because you got to keep the player buying. If it's on a great team uh, like the Astros were with their bullpen management, I, I think they just got to a point where, to some degree, no matter how Dusty deployed the bullpen, they were going to be great. I think it was his handling of the players that was difference making. Matt, eater of uh, Cheese Whiz and master of spreadsheets, Kayaking Smith, our friend, writes in, who did it better? Juan Solo, 2019 Homer, uh, to the tracks in the World Series. Jorge Soler, 2021 in the World Series, Homer out of the building, or the Jordan Alvarez home run that we've talked about a lot. I got to say Jorge Soler. That was that was some wild stuff. That, that really stuck out to me in that list. Yeah, the Alvarez home run for me because it was a moment when Alvarez hit that home run. You're like, that's it. That's that's it. The World Series is over, right? As soon as he mm-hmm. hit that ball. <laughs> and on top of that, as the Philly center fielder was retreating, that's who I always look to to you know get a, a view on whether or not or get a read on whether or not a ball's out. Like he ran back like the most optimistic person ever, Matt Beerling, because he he was running back. I'm like, oh, will will he have a chance? Will he have a chance? And then the ball goes on top of the batter's eye. It, that that was a pretty amazing home run. Next up, RL Foxy T-Rex has a question for Sarah. This person writes in, the people need to know, does lifelong Phillies fan Sarah feel she personally jinxed the Phillies by messing with their mojo before game four? Please tell well, me. Well, um, I hope not. And hand up, that one's on me if I did. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Pat Johnston writes in at the melting pat. They didn't win at all, but I got to watch a bunch of Phillies playoff games with my son. What are some cool sports moments you have with your kids or Taylor and Sarah with their parents? Okay. This is a 100% true story. My daughter, Sydney, uh, who turns 23 later this month. Uh, this is how much she's invested in sports. Uh, after game five, she uh, and I were talking on the phone and she said, you know, I, I just found out a World Series is more than one game, right? 
She said, she, she said, I was wondering, you know, she said, I always thought it was just one game. You'd go away. And then I thought there was all this, you know, preparation for the one big game. And then I just found out it's a series best of seven. Why did they do that? So that was the question for my daughter that, that uh, gives you some insight into how much of a sports fan she is. Okay. My son, I, he, he is a big sports fan and we've had some great sports moments together. Amazing. Uh, Debbie Gammons Brown writes in always sad at the end of baseball season, except the part where Buster lets us hear the great a Bartlett Giamatti read his green fields of the mind on the podcast. It's the equivalent of a Sarah Lang's baseball is the best tweet. And uh, Amy Chapman piggybacks on that. I'm reluctantly because I know this means the season is over getting ready for the annual playing of Giamatti's green fields of the mind. What was he like? And did you ever meet or cover him? I never met him. Uh, I never covered him. I just started covering minor league baseball at the uh, the end of his life, at the end of his time as baseball commissioner. The one thing that you hear from everybody was that he was a pure baseball fan. It's part of the reason why I don't think he would have lasted as ju- as, uh, as commissioner of the game because he would have looked at his job as being a steward for fans uh, as well as for players and owners. And as we know, when Bud Selig took over that position, it basically, uh, the commissioner became a representative of the owners versus the head of the player association. He was really, uh, he was a special person, a special baseball fan. All right. Well, that does it for Bleacher Tweets for the 2022 season. Keep them coming because the podcast will press on. I think we'll go weekly for the most part. Maybe we'll mix it up around the holidays, but uh, you know, we will continue on. Thanks for writing in, everyone, all season long. Yeah, and we'll see. We're going to talk after the podcast about whether or not we'll have one later this week. If not, we'll have one next week. Um, you know, it, it will, we'll definitely keep a regular presence uh, in your podcast feed. That's for sure. All right, that's it for today. That's it for this week. My thanks to Doug, Sarah, David, Todd, our video producer, Adi, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Remember, hate and inequality based on skin skin color is something that we need to fight against every single day. Uh, And in keeping with the tradition cited by Debbie Gammons-Brown, here's Bart Giamatti reading Green Fields of the Mind. But Bart, of course, is a Renaissance man, and that means that he is also... A Red Sox fan. <laughs> he wrote a classic piece, actually, one of his great pieces called The Green Fields of the Mind. Please welcome him back, Commissioner Bart Giamatti. This little piece was originally written one afternoon as the class notes for the class of 1960 in Yale College. I was the class secretary. I had absolutely nothing to say about my classmates. (laughs) I wrote what you're about to hear. It was properly and immediately rejected by the Yale Alumni Magazine on the grounds that it was completely irrelevant to the purpose of the class notes. (laughs) I accepted the judgment cheerfully And then, (laughs) when unaccountably, two months later, I became president, the alumni magazine reprinted it. (laughs) Remarkable. But not as class notes. It breaks your heart. It is designed to break your heart. 
The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again, and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings, and then as soon as the chill rains come, it stops and leaves you to face the fall alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive, and then just when the days are all twilight, when you need it most, it stops. Today, October 2nd, a Sunday of rain and broken branches and leaf-clogged drains and slick streets, it stopped and summer was gone. Somehow the summer seemed to slip by faster this time. Maybe it wasn't this summer, but all the summers that in this, my 40th summer, slipped by so fast. There comes a time when every summer will have something of autumn in it. Whatever the reason, it seemed to me that I was investing more and more in baseball making the game do more of the work that keeps time fat and slow and lazy. I was counting on the game's deep patterns, three strikes, three outs, three times, three innings, and its deepest impulse to go out and back, to leave and to return home, to set the order of the day and to organize the daylight. I, I, I wrote a few things this past summer, this summer that did not last, nothing grand but some things, and yet that work was just camouflage. The real activity was done with the radio, not the all-seeing, all-falsifying television. And was the playing of the game in the only place it will last, the enclosed green field of the mind, there in that warm, bright place what the old poet called mutability does not so quickly come. But out here on Sunday, October 2nd, when it rains all day, Dame Mutability never loses. She was in the crowd at Fenway yesterday, a gray day full of bluster and contradiction. When the Red Sox came up in the last of the ninth, trailing Baltimore eight to five, well, the Yankees, rain delayed against Detroit, needing only to win one or have Boston lose one to win it all, sat in New York washing down cold cuts with beer and watching the Boston game. Boston had won two, the Yankees had lost two, and suddenly it seemed as if the whole season might go to the last day or beyond, except here was Boston losing eight to five, while New York sat in its family room and put up its feet. Lynn, both ankles hurting now as they had in July, hits a single down the right field line. The crowd stirs. It's on its feet. Hobson, third baseman, former Bear Bryant quarterback, strong, quiet, over 100 RBIs, goes for three breaking balls and is out. The goddess smiles and encourages her agent, a canny journeyman named Nelson Bryles. Now comes the pinch hitter, Bernie Carbo, one-time rookie of the year, erratic, quick, a shade, too handsome, so laid back he's always in his soul, stretched out in the tall grass, one arm under his head, watching the clouds and laughing. Now he looks over some low stuff, unworthy of him, and then, uncoiling, sends one out straight on a rising line over the center field wall, no cheap Fenway shot, but all of it, the physics as elegant as the arc the ball describes. New England is on its feet, roaring. The summer will not pass. Roaring, they recall the evening late and cold in 1975, the sixth game of the World Series, perhaps the greatest baseball game played in the last 50 years, when Carbo, Loose and easy, had uncoiled to tie the game that Fisk would win. It is now eight to seven, one out, and school will never start, rain will never come, sun will warm the back of your neck forever. Now Bailey, 
picked up from the National League recently, big arms, heavy gut experience, new to the league and the club, fouls off two, and then checking, tentative, a big man, off balance, he pops a soft liner to the first baseman. It is suddenly darker and later. And the announcer doing the game coast to coast, a New Yorker who works for a New York television station, sounds relieved. His little world, well-lit, hot-combed, split-second-timed, has no capacity to absorb this much gritty, grainy, contrary reality. Cox swings a bat, stretches his long arm, bends his back. The rookie from Pawtucket who broke in two weeks ago with a record six straight hits. The kid drafted ahead of Freddie Lynn. Rangy, smooth, cool. The count runs two and two, and Cox swings. And the ball beginning toward the mound, and then in a jaunty wayward dance, skips past Bryles, fainting to the right, skimming the last of the grass, finding the dirt, moving now like some small, purposeful marine creature negotiating the green deep, easily avoiding the jagged rock of second base and traveling steady and straight now out into the dark, silent recesses of center field. <laughs> well, the aisles are jammed, the place is on its feet, the wrappers, the program, the Coke cups and peanut shells, the detritus of an afternoon, the anxieties, the things that have to be done tomorrow, the regrets about yesterday, the accumulation of a summer, all forgotten, while hope, the anchor, bites and takes hold, where a moment before it had seemed we would be swept out with the tide, rice is up. Rice, who Aaron had said was the only one he'd seen with the ability to break his records. Rice, the best clutch hitter on the club with the best slugging percentage in the league. Rice, so quick and strong, he once checked his swing halfway through and snapped the bat in two. Rice, the hammer of God, sent to scourge the Yankees. <laughs> the sound was overwhelming. Fathers pounded their sons in the back, cars pulled off the road, households froze. New England exulted in its blessedness and roared its thanks for all good things for rice and for a summer stretching halfway through October. Bryles threw, rice swung, and it was over. One pitch, fly to center, and it stopped. Summer died in New England, and like rain sliding off a roof, the crowd slipped out of Fenway quickly, with only a steady murmur of concern for the drive ahead remaining of the roar. Dame mutability had turned the seasons and translated hope to memory once again. And once again, she had used baseball, our best invention to stay change, to bring change on. That is why it breaks my heart, that game. Not because in New York they could win because Boston lost, and that there's a rough justice and a reminder to the Yankees of how slight and fragile are the circumstances that exalt one group of human beings over another. It breaks my heart because it was meant to, because it was meant to foster in me again the illusion that there was something abiding, some pattern and some impulse that could come together to make a reality that would resist the corrosion. And because after it had fostered again that most hungered for illusion, the game was meant to stop and betray precisely what it promised. Now, of course there are those who learn after the first few times. <laughs> they grow out of sports. And there are others who are born with the wisdom to know that nothing lasts. 
These are the truly tough among us, the ones who can live without illusion or without even the hope of illusion. But I am not that grown up or up to date. I am a simpler creature, tied to more primitive patterns and cycles. I need to think something lasts forever. And it might as well be that state of being that is a game. It might as well be that in a green field in the sun. Thank you. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.